0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume in September of 2021 in New York City. And that's to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Ed Hagem to Salt Talks. Ed is the son of a Syrian immigrant and is a seasoned Wall Street executive with more than 50 years of investment experience. He's held senior management positions with Capital Group, EF Hutton, Lehman Brothers, all before becoming chairman and CEO of Furman Seltz. Hagem uh, has been the co-chairman of ING Bearings, the Americas region, chairman and CEO of ING Eltis Group, and ING Firm and Sells Asset Management after that acquisition, and chairman and CEO of MLH Capital. Today, he is the chairman of High Vista, a Boston-based money management company. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman of Salt and I believe you know it's, it's been something like 20 years Anthony you mentioned since you stepped into Ed's office uh, when you were at your previous business Oscar Capital. All right, all right. Look take, to talking take about it, that. Take and it and easy
1: Ed's John Darcy. Life. I've been lying about my age, okay? You didn't have to <laughs> let everybody know that I know age him for that long. Uh, the truth the truth be told right before 9/11, uh, I went to see Ed. Uh he Probably won't remember the uh, visit as well as I do because at that time he was still is a legendary person on Wall Street and you know what I what I after reading your book one of my reactions to you Ed and I said this to my old professor Saul Gittleman, you are the O positive of relationships meaning you're like the universal donor you can meet people find something in common with them and build a relationship uh, and that's one of the big takeaways from your book. But I remember our meeting very vividly because we were in the process of selling our company. Uh, One of your colleagues, Bill Turgeon, brought us into your your office and you gave me great advice, uh, which I often give to other people, which was, you know, do the right thing for your employees, pick the place uh, to land them in a way where you know it'll help their careers uh, and that'll turn out to be a good decision. We ultimately sold that business to Newberger Berman uh, Jeff Lane uh, uh, was running Newberger at that time. Um, but, but on to you, I want to hold up the book. Uh, it, it's On the Road Less Traveled. Uh, 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 the book is An Unlikely Journey from the Orphanage to the Boardroom. I got to tell you, sir, it was a brilliant read. I'm not saying that to flatter you. I read a lot of books. We have a lot of authors on but your story is remarkable and unique. So I'd like to ask you that first question. Tell us how you grew up, Ed.
2: It, uh, it, it, it's a story that starts prior to my birth when my father came over and, as an immigrant in 1900. And uh, they, they settled in Bensonhurst in Brooklyn. Uh, Dad became fascinated as a young man with something called radio. And by 1918, had, you know, taken a number of technical courses, got involved in RCA, and for the next, you know, the one roaring 20s did very, very well. I have a picture of him with an airplane. He supposedly owned buildings on 110th Street. And in in 29, he was obviously margined uh, 10 to 1 like everybody else. And in the next four years, between 1929 and 33, lost everything. And those of us who know, friends who have you know, declined in, in, in personal wealth and so forth. No, it has an enormous impact. And when you lose everything, I mean everything, <clears throat> at the same time, his most important parent, his mother, died. She supposedly died of a broken heart. She was involved in the community, and community went into difficulty, and she died. In 1933, he decided that basically uh, he was either going to commit suicide or drive across country with his last ju- possession, which was his car. Lucky for me, he decided not to commit suicide and drive across country. Uh, he stopped at a cousin's home in St. Louis, and uh, he, was, he met their fifth child, who was an 18-year-old young lady, 15 years his junior, and they got married in two weeks, which is another story. Anyway, they proceeded to California. To, they found out streets were not paved with gold. Dad had trouble finding a job. Supposedly, the only happiness happened three years later when I was born in 1936. At the Queen of Angels Hospital. Uh, and it lasted a few a few months, and they found out that having a, a you know another mouth to feed was not a good deal. Three years later, uh, difficulty really was, my father was a very difficult man, having all the demons from his decline in wealth. Uh, my mother, at 24 years old, divorced my father and got custody of me and took me from, from Los Angeles back to her home in St. Louis. She was not welcomed in St. Louis. Her father had five five children at the time, and he was not glad to see a divorced 24-year-old woman with a three-year-old child. My father got $5 a week alimony and uh, uh, child support, and he got Sunday visiting rights. On the book cover, you'll see the picture of my father and I in a car, 1936 Roadster driving on Highway 66. One of the visiting rights, he got there, he found me so-called unkept, and instead of taking me to a movie or to the playground, he got back on Highway 36 and kept driving to Los Angeles. Uh, told me that uh, I'd never see my mother again. And a few weeks later, he said she died. And that's how I kept it for another uh, 57 years, thinking that she had passed away. Uh, Dad and I spent a couple of years together, although he was a merchant marine at the time, a radio operator. I spent time with a, with a neighbor most of the time. And when the war started, he was either either volunteered or became, was uh, drafted as an officer in the Merchant Marines. And I didn't see him for four and a half years. Uh, he put me with a Catholic welfare agency, which resulted in my being at five Catholic uh, foster homes, five schools, uh, which was an interesting experience. The war ended. Dad came back on the East Coast. I made the trip across country. We spent some time in the Sloan House on 34th Street, the YMCA, which still exists, wasn't a pleasant place at the time. Then a hotel room in Coney Island while he sought land-based work. It didn't work. He had to go back to sea. Uh, then I ended up in two Jewish orphanages, one in Far Rockaway. When I aged out of that one, I ended up in a better, a, a very good orphanage in Yonkers, New York, about four blocks from Excellum High School. So 15 or 20 different places in the first 18 years. Uh, you know, a real Ejira, as they call it, a trip from from you know from Mecca to Medina and many stops along the way, and the, the the relationships from the foster homes were ranged from being abusive and cold to warm and caring. So you know what I got out of that were a lot of disadvantages, which in my book I try to put across to people like me. Resulted in some advantages, and that's sort of the thumbnail sketch. It's it's in the book. It's it's better well done than me just running through all those pages very quickly, but. The childhood was very difficult, and it, you know, some people call it Dicksonian. This, and, but it, it, I, I it, as I say, it wasn't my fault. You know, and I, I had people along the way that did help me. Writing the book made me recognize there were some very good people along the way, which basically helped me, you know, get through the period. Uh, Dad came in and out of my life, and uh, at 17, I make one of the key decisions of my life. I decided. That one, I was going to go to a private college, no matter what it took. And I just got that done. And two, I was going to take my background and hide it, which the psychologists would today would say would be a disaster. But for me, it was the answer. I was going to draw that line at 18 years old, go to a college and tell everybody that never tell anybody my, my story. And I kept that a secret for 55 years. And that's another story.
1: So. I wanna go directly to what you attribute to be one of the cornerstones of your success, and that's your wife, Barbara. And you write some beautiful passages about her in the book. But one of the things that is uh, uh, striking to people that are married is the unconditionality of love between a spouse or two spouses, I should say. We see that relationship often with children, but you have that relationship with your wife. And since we're here to also embarrass you, just give me one. <laughs> There's a beautiful picture of you right here. So I'm going to look at this strapping young man. in Come on, Don't I'm a hunk. On, on. I'm a hunk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, that's 1959. Okay, there you are uh, looking like a super hunk there. So tell us about the courtship with Barbara, how she came into your life and her influence.
2: It's a long story and, and I hope you can put up with it, but now, that picture was taken when I was at an, an, an ensign in the Navy, our first trip across the ocean, stopped in Hawaii, and somebody took that picture, and I thought it was kind of humorous. Uh, Barbara, the story about Barbara and I really is, a, you, can't, you really can't tell a story like this. In my in, And by the way, at the end of the book, I have my four P's, and the third P is partnership, partners. And there's a thing called P1. If you truly can find P1 early in life, someone who you can support, who will support you, someone who you can share your life with, it really solves at least half the problem. And I the Barber situation is, it's unfortunately a long story. It starts in 1957 when I was the editor of a, I founded, I was founding editor of a humor magazine at the University of Rochester. I felt that the school was a place where fun went to die and I was going to create a humor magazine. That's a whole story. Anyway, uh, the next editor was a boy named David Melnick, who was a year behind me. And in order to transfer the information on this on the humor magazine, I went to his house in Staten Island. And while I was there talking about the humor magazine, his 13 or 14 year old little pigtail sister was buzzing around and we kept chasing her away. After I left the house, she told her mother and father that she was gonna marry me. Of course, she there had a teenage crush. They didn't think twice about it. Seven years later, I was at the business school my second year Phone rang spring. It was David Milnick. He said, well, I'm getting married and I want you to be my best man. I said, great. Hung the phone up, realized I did not have the money to fly to San Francisco where he was in school. So I quickly called the placement officer. And I said, have you got anything in California? I don't care what they do. I need a ticket. And the girl lady there was a buddy of mine. Actually, we, we had dated for a while. And so she said, come on over. There's nobody there's no availability, but there's a company here called Capital Research that's in a mutual fund business. i had never taken an investment course. I wanted to manage a business. I didn't want to go in the investment business. They said, we'll put you outside the chairman's door and you can cost them and see if you can get the invitation to the dinner. They invite a bunch of people to dinner. Then they cut the group in half and they invite half out to for another interview in Los Angeles. Uh, I got there, stood outside the door. Jim Fullerton, the chairman, came out. And the way he tells the story is I he learned more about me in 10 minutes than he learned all day long by anybody, any hour interview. Anyway, they invited me to dinner. I made the cut. I got the chance to go to California. I was on my way to the airport, and I got a phone call from Barbara's mother, who said, would I take little Barbara to the wedding? And I said, sure. At Idlewild Airport, which is now Kennedy, we passed each other a dozen times. I finally had PA system and the little 13 year old turned out to be a 20 year old striking young lady. And we got in the airplane, she fell asleep on my shoulder. We went to the wedding, we danced, we had a good time. And I appeared the next morning, Monday morning at Capital Research hungover, not interested, only interested in one thing, which was to get out of there. The first thing he did was give me a battery of psychological tests, which I flunked. I can spend my time on Capital Research because it was a great, great day. Anyway, I finally got out of there, went back to Harvard, Uh, And a couple of weeks later, I invited her up for a weekend and she quickly said, yes. And I said, "Okay, I'll fix you up with someone your own age. And I did. And then a couple of weeks later, I didn't have a date. So I think, well, I invited her up and she came up and she spent a weekend with me, very innocent weekend. And I didn't think anything of it. She's a nice little girl, much younger, you know, seven years younger than I was. So we were all set, ready to take a job on Wall Street. I'd interviewed all the usuals, Goldman Sachs and and Loeb and Lehman Brothers and, and Eastman Dillon and so forth, and I was going to take one of those jobs. And uh, there's a long story in there. Anyway, I decided at the last minute to take a job in California Capital Research, this company that I, I had no interest in. By the way, I worked for it for 10 years. Barbara was a teacher in, in Connecticut. She immediately canceled her job and applied to graduate school at San Francisco State, University of California, San Francisco, got in, and went to San Francisco, we dated for about a year and somewhere along the line under the, under the Golden Gate Bridge I proposed and um, we were married. So it was a, it was a, it's, a it's an odyssey, uh, I ended up spending 10 years with the company I had no interest in, The only reason I went out there was to be the wedding for her brother and we're now married 55 years and we have three wonderful children and eight grandchildren which is really my legacy, uh, seven grandsons by the way. So that's too long a story, but unfortunately, no, no, that's the
1: story. And please, it's a it's a brilliant story, which is why I didn't want to interrupt one second of it. And you regale some of it in the book. Uh, I'm not a pop psychologist, um, but I I when I read your book, I made an observation to myself and a note. And I'm going to ask you this, and and you you know I just want you to react to it you know, some people that grow up the way you did in a fractured situation, moving about, uh, can develop trust issues, can develop uh, fear-based uh, relationships, not want to wade deeply into the pool. Uh, but you managed to overcome all of that uh, as it relates to your marriage, but also the business relationships. And And I'd like you to get into the four Ps if you don't mind. Uh, I don't want to ruin the book for people because I certainly want them to read it but I want them to get a sense for your ethos. How were you able to um, break out of the shifting winds and sands of your childhood to live this anchored in such a stable, great uh, career arc and family arc?
2: You know, I can go into it in, in depth, but I wanna, if I wanna simply say why, the problem with most people who have backgrounds like me that spiral down is they become victims come victims of their circumstance. I refuse, no matter what happened to me. And by the way, my entire life, not to be a victim, always to ask what's next. I've tried to delve in why I took that posture, possibly because my, my father was a victim. He always complained. It was always somebody else's fault. And children tend to do the opposite of their parents. So maybe that was the reason. But all through my life, no matter what happened to me, and I had a wonderful question last night at Alfred University. A young man asked me, you was know, the hardest thing that I've ever had to do in my life? And I said, it's basically something where you do everything right and it still comes out wrong. Spend seven years at Lehman Brothers, turn two divisions around, and they still throw you out in the street because you don't get along with the boss. Or, you know, you go to a Dan Tuckett and you, you apply to the golf club and they reject you. You know, even though you're a good guy and you sit next to the, the guy who's a, 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 a trustee, you know who recommends you and so forth. So, in many respects, don't I? I just I'm pitching this by the well, big story. Well, John
1: Dorsey story. wants me to landscape the golf club that he's a member of. I just want to point that out to you, Ed. Okay, <laughs> tell you what, we're up against here. But we go ahead, keep going. But you built a golf club on Nantucket, so we'll go That's into right. that in a second too. But but, but tell you, I, I didn't mean to interrupt victim. you, but I had to throw Darcy under the bus there temporarily. Go go ahead.
2: Don't be a victim. Okay? No matter what anybody does to you try to think of how to what to do next and get out of it, you know, whatever it is. And in my case, it really has paid off because in many respects, you know, getting thrown, getting Lehman, my Lehman Brothers story is a great story because it, I really did everything right for the first time in my life. I mean, I, I, I communicated with people, I actually made the first woman vice president of Lehman Management Company, blah, blah, blah. But Glucksman and I didn't get along and he forced me out of my division. And I, I left there and I got my dream job afterwards. And the same thing with the golf course. Being rejected is the best thing that ever happened to me because I don't know what you're doing, John, but building a golf course is one of the great experiences of all times. I I can talk about legacy, you know, all the companies i worked for, except for Capital Research. Well, it's
1: also it's also the best golf course on Nantucket. I don't know if you're by far. (laughs) I I don't know if you remember. (laughs) We're not allowed to say that. (laughs) okay, all right. I'm sorry. Well, I'm not really much of a golfer, but I don't know if you remember Jack Schneider from Allen and Company. Oh, yeah. Uh, he he took me there. He had several uh, friends of his that were members there, uh, and uh, it was absolutely breathtaking.
0: And Anthony shot, I think, one forty-three.
1: Well, and then, that was and that they, was on the first nine. And they made the. I had yeah. a one forty-three on the first nine. Let's not talk about the entire score. Of course, I did think that you had a score. You were scoring points by swinging. I didn't realize it was the opposite, but we we'll, we could talk about that later. Go to the four piece. So so but but one of the things I want to emphasize we have a lot of young people listening to our salt Talks. No victimhood, no self-pity. Uh, you know, you take life as it comes and you 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 do your best to see the good things in life, and you come in it from a position of gratitude, which you obviously have indicated in the book. But tell us about the four P's. Let me give you let me give you
2: just again, you you said it so well. Don't be a victim, don't look for self pity, don't look, don't look for anything special. Failure early in life is a gift. Think about that. Doing everything right and have things go wrong is a gift. You learn from that. And because in many respects, all of the mistakes, the problems that I had turned out much better because they occurred. The four Ps in my mind, and this is really, you got to buy me a bottle, a bottle of a good red wine. We can spend the evening on it. I truly believe, and this is a, a, this is my own way down deep thought process. You only have one constant in your life, it's your inner voice, and you must develop a language for your inner voice. That's why I want young people to be talking to them. They talk to themselves, but a lot of it's noise. That's why I developed the four Ps. If you say to yourself, "What are my passions?" and passions are an overused word, I know that. It's what are your talents? What are your interests? And how do they frame with today's world? What are your principles? What are your principles? You know what 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 lines won't you cross? I mean, I started in Catholic school, so you know, I, I got the uh, golden rule with the golden ruler on the knuckles, you know, and and they basically <laughs> made me understand what the good Lord wanted me to do. So that was very good. But principles change throughout your entire life, just like passions, you know, passions evolve. And I make the point in passions, I started out with, you know, baseball, basketball, math, science, and girls, and you know, it morphed at college. And I can go through that in length, if you'd like. Principles, same way morphed. i I, you know, Early on, I had the second golden rule, which is he who has the gold rules. I had great desire to become financially independent. And everybody for, that faces that fork in the road, how much of your effort you want to spend on achieving financial resources. And I had spent a lot of effort on it until I was about 47. At the end of Lehman Brothers, I kind of had just enough money to, to sort of get through, and I would take a job that I really wanted, which was to be work with a small firm and have fun. Freedom became more important than money at that point in time. And of course, later on, the most important thing which to now is gratitude. Really gratitude is very important. Now, the third P, partners. And besides finding P1, you find you're only as good as the people you surround yourself with. Now, I look back at my failures is because I either didn't have a partner or I had the wrong partner. Whenever I had the right partner, is a big tall six foot five guy from Dartmouth, his name is Steve Bletcher. Who constantly came to my office and said, Don't do that. You can do this. It's okay. And he he took care of the all the four-letter firms, and you would you would, would associate with this SEC, NASD, New York Stock Exchange. Anybody who came in, he handled it. I was able to do the things. I use my partners. One thing, find partners who do things you can't do, but need to be done. Find partners that things that you can do, but they do it better than you do. It. Then find partners who do things that you can do very well, but you don't wanna do. So what you end up with is things you like to do that you do well. Think about that. And that's why I structured my partners. Now, I have a secret for that. Now, the fourth thing is plans. Uh, plans, you know, God, you know, man plans and God laughs. That's a, a Chinese expression that the Yiddish people took on. But you know, in many respects, it's, it's not true. I want people to write plans because at least they know where they wanted to go. And then to take those plans and think about the context of your life. You want to have some fun. Spend an evening thinking about somebody born in 1900, like my father, and someone born in 1936, like me, the difference in our life. Context, context. You know, find a wave or a cycle or a, or a trend or something that basically is going to go up during your lifetime. And if you can find that, get the wind at your back. And it fits with your Passions and your principles and your partners, you know, boy, you've got it. I like to marry those first three to the fourth one, and I always kid about this friend of mine. You know, loved Alaska, loved gold mining, was helping the Indians up there. Everything was going finely. Married someone who hated the coal You know, doesn't work. You know, there's that kind of thing that you sort of have to deal with. Those are the four P's. I used it at Rochester almost in every one of my graduate. I made seventy graduation speeches. I use it most of the time because I really thought that those are not necessarily the four Ps, but use a language with yourself that you can go back to. And of course, the fifth P is purpose, which all those things, you know, undermine, underlie, the underlie purpose for everything you're doing. And so I find this. And if you can concentrate and look at your passions, and my passions changed. I mean, in college, I was a very I wanted to be a physicist for a while. But by my junior year, I started to recognize what really turned me on. My real passion was helping people. I started the humor magazine and I took on partners, helping people be better than they think they can help them to exceed their own expectations. That really got me excited. I didn't know it at the time, looking back in my business career, I started to recognize that's what turned me on. And you say, why have I made good relationships? Because if people believe that you're really interested in them it makes life a lot easier, not easy. And then, of course, you marry that with the most difficult thing that people do in our business is, you know, you can reach great heights if you don't worry about who gets the credit. So if someone feels that you're really interested in them and they're going to get the credit, if you have a couple hundred of those people surrounding you, you will do really well.
1: So, I mean, again, these are all these are great pieces of advice. I I want to go back to the book for a second because Uh, You live this. You live this in the book. Um, Take me back to the Nantucket story because uh, you're 56, 58 years old. You're in that ballpark. It's 1994. You're opening uh, the golf course. Uh, Take us through the process of getting the zoning approval on that ancient uh, New England island, if you will, uh, and how you were able to make it all happen. It's one of the things
2: I, I left out of the book, in many respects, because we were bidding against a very prominent you know, other person in, in getting the property. And we had to pay a little more than we finally we a knockout bid at eight million dollars for the property. And we had constant covenants in there and in, in our bid, which the well, last one was, you know, if we didn't get golf, golf permitted, then we would basically not buy the property. Well, he took that out on his last bid. So we had to take it out. And I had, uh, you know, raised uh, $10 million with 50 people, $200,000 a piece. And i go back to them and say, we may not have a golf course. We'll just give you five acres a piece. <laughs> anyway, and so we started the process with with uh, with all of the agencies. And of course, Nantucket was easy because this property was zoned with what they call R2. We could have put 150 units on that property. And we decided, we showed them a, a, a program. We said, here's what we can do, 128 units. Here's we should do 60 units. Here's we're gonna do five units, a clubhouse plus four cottages. And so Nat and Tuckus ran us through pretty quickly. Uh, But Massachusetts, we got caught finally with a endangered species woman who was in charge of that. And she was worried about the Harrier Hawk. And so we had to spend about $800,000 doing all kinds of things for the Harrier Hawk, which went on for 10 years. But anyway, we had about four foot of paper in the permitting process and you know, $2 million. But we got the job done, it took us about almost over a year to get the thing done. And finally we started with the bulldozers and on April the 8th, 1995, it looked like the landing <clears throat> you know, the landing on D-Day with all the uh, back hose and front hose and bulldozers coming down Milestone Drive. And I still say one of the great things and I'm not, I collect a little bit of art, but Building a golf course is art with a bulldozer and moving as little dirt as you can and using as much of the natural undulation, which we could. Fred and I stood up, Fred Green, who deserves all the credit for building the golf course. he's built. We built three golf courses together, one in Vale, second was in Nantucket, and the third was in London. But Fred did a fantastic job. He brought in Reese Jones, and the whole thing was covered with four or five foot of, of scrub oak. We couldn't even see it when we drove through it. And one day we were standing in the middle of it all. He said, why don't we take it all down? I said, what will it cost? He said, well, probably quarter to a half a million dollars. We took it all down and found one of the great, just natural undulation. And so we took, we, the bulldozers didn't have to do too much work. Anyway, we, uh, we spent two years building the golf course with Reese. It turned out to be the number one private golf course built in 1997. Our clubhouse also won the number one award uh, in golf magazine. And it was a great experience. And I have been hugged by more women because their husbands has moved them to Nantucket than anybody in the Western world. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it, no way would come to God, come to Nantucket. Just as I, when, when I got turned down by Sanctity, I went back to Barbara. I said, I think we're going to have to sell a house. She said, No, oh, Bill can't sell a house. Why don't you build a golf course? You built one in Vail. I said, Vail's got land. Nantucket doesn't have land. So I went out and I found the land, invited Fred out and the rest is history. We have basically changed the island. We've, in fact, I gave gave credit to the the membership because about two years in, well, first year we had our first charity event, we raised $400,000. People went crazy. We had 13 requests the next year. We said, stop. We started something called the children's charity a couple of years later, which is the only charitable event at the island. We don't allow anything else. Nobody can come to the island and raise money except that one night. And now we're into this almost 20 years. We've put 25 kids through college. We're the largest charity on the island. We support 40 or 50 different charities every year. We've made a contribution to the new Boys and Girls Club, to the new hospital. And we've now started my new mini crusade, which is vocational education. We now have through vocational scholarships, welders, chefs. To go to Thompson Wells, it costs $40,000 a year. So we have... Two college scholarships and three or four vocational scholarships every year. We hold one gala, and I think we raise more money per, per capita than almost any place I've ever been in. And it's some it's a model I'd love if I had time to take it to other clubs around the country because you really become, instead of golf club, you become an institution. And that really changes everything. And and the island, you know, accepts us now as as part of it, part of their milieu. And I think it's very important. And if I wasn't rejected, we probably never would have built the club and you know, and I still say one of the great opportunities of all times, all times. After finish nine holes, you go up to the snack bar, you tell Kelly you want a you want a muscle milk or a you know a smoothie or something, and she says, What's your number? And you say, Number one. And that's the best, that's the greatest compliment anyone could
1: ever have. <laughs> I, I I love I love I love the story for so many different reasons. There's been a lot of clubs that I frankly have been rejected from over my life at. But, but I will say this about Nantucket. Uh, my first trip to Nantucket, uh, I was at, at Tufts University. Um, and I obviously had gone to Cape Cod. I took the ferry over to Nantucket, uh, fell in love with the island. And my mm-hmm. wife, my first date with her was on the island of Nantucket. And uh, I took her there. Uh, we went to the White Elephant for breakfast and then- the oh, uh, no, no, no. White
2: Elephant's right there. It's actually down the block from my house.
1: Yeah, the, the white elephant, beautiful. Um, and so uh, a few years back, she presented me a map of the island, uh, which was uh, made in the 1870s. It's a beautiful map, uh, of, uh, and it's in my house here. So I have a lot of fondness for Nantucket. Well, my um,
2: wife, we got there in 86. We were there for two hours. She said, get a real estate agent. <laughs> Being an island lady at Staten Island, Nantucket, she just fell in love. And, and she was one of the prime movers on the, in the whaling museum. But we have a map and you have to come to our house. We we have a map in our house from 1775 of Nantucket, which I bought in London and have it up there. And another one, we have a couple of maps. I used to collect maps for a while, but uh, my wife fell in love with Nantucket and she can sit there in our living room in the rain with a smile on her face. So she's just a happy lady at Nantucket.
1: Well, I, I got to let John in here. He's got some questions from our audience, but uh, I love the stories, Ed, and I love, I love your life story, and I'm so happy that you were able to put it down uh, into words, On the Road Less Traveled, and I'm encouraging all the young people that listen to us, please go out and buy this book. Um, but John, go ahead.
0: Yeah, so you obviously had a storied career uh, on Wall Street, Ed, at, at a lot of great organizations, Capital Group, EF Hutton, uh, Lehman Brothers, Furman Seltz. What did you learn at at any of those stops about things that that worked well in terms of organizational culture and process, and some things that you encountered that uh, that you wish you could have fixed or or that you observed that didn't work?
2: Well, i learned I learned a process. I mean, I'm an engineer by background. so it's you know it's observe, design, do analyze the results. And so you got to have sort of things you focus on. I do believe the following process: it's and Lehman Brothers wouldn't agree with this. It's culture first, strategy, people, numbers. And Lehman Brothers always put, you know, was more focused on the numbers. That's why they they made me hire, and thank God they did. This fellow, Steve Bletcher, do all the numbers for me. But I work on culture and strategy. Those two, you could do strategy first and culture second, but it's important. Culture usually eats strategy. If you don't have the right culture, it doesn't work. And in each case, that's what I try to do. Try to produce a culture by being, by being willing, and the Navy taught me this, be willing to do anything that anybody in your shop has done. I was sat on the trading desk, I made sales, I sure as heck did research, I was a research analyst. So running an institutional business was really easy. I could relate to any one of them. Now what I did learn, and I, this is the what's next question, especially in our day and age, you have gotta keep asking that. And each time I changed jobs or made a move, it was because what's next? I left Hutton because Foeman would not marry my fabulous research department. This banking business, he was an analyst or a you know, gophers, They're statisticians and our bankers, you know, they're they're you know they're, they're the people that really work with important people. I said, no, you don't understand. Analysts know more than anybody about companies, and that's what companies want today and tomorrow. And they also want trading. And so he didn't buy that because he was a retail guy, and I and I understood that because he wanted enough institutional business not to be embarrassed, and I did that. He wanted me to take over retail, and I said retail is okay. The new game in town is institutional. Lehman Brothers was building a 40, 40 a, a 400 seat trading room, and that just I, that was the next step in our business. And so I knew that and. FOMA was not willing to do that. So I went to Lehman Brothers. And of course, Lehman Brothers, the story's been written too many times. You know the problems there. It's cultural. Complete. They're the smartest guys in the world. I mean, I will never forget getting a phone call from one of our Italian partners. He says, you've got to tell me about the economy. I said, where are you? He said, I'm on the Pope's plane. <laughs> I mean, they, and I remember working with Peterson. He had you know, He would have the Federal Reserve Chairman on hold, you know, talking to somebody else. Kissinger or somebody else. I mean, they, at lunchtime, you looked at the people coming to lunch, I mean, it was unbelievable. And so it was a, it was a sad, sad story when Lehman went down. But what I learned constantly, and with Furman cells, it was what I, it, my message was very simple. We're sitting on a lily pad, we're a bunch of frogs, and if it's a good lily pad, other people are gonna jump on this lily pad, and slowly but surely it's gonna sink, we better jump to another one. So we constantly had to stay moving. During my 15 years there, before we got bought by ING, almost half the firms like us went out of business or were merged out. So we stayed in business by continuing to add businesses, by continuing, I mean, I, I built a money management business really 40, 40 million to 12 billion in that period before money management was really important to investment banks and so forth. But I learned constantly to keep moving. And by the way, also to constantly give people reason to do their own thing. I mean, they would kid me about another guy, you're bringing him in. You're giving him a desk and telephone. You're going to check them in six months. Ed, what are you doing? But that's what really happened. And all my guys really were. And I, I also credit myself with the compensation problem on Wall Street. For 20 years, I was the highest paid person in the firm one year. That was the year we sold to Xerox. Because I really felt I did that when I deserved being paid the most. But then I was not. because I think that. And by the way, David Kearns at Xerox told me that. When I merged him, he said, "You know, I've never been the highest-paid person at Xerox, and he was one of the classic guys of all times." I've over answered your question. I think it's what's no, next? you haven't.
0: It, well, it was exactly what I was looking for, and I think it explains a lot of why you were so successful. Is that you know, you you hire good people and you put your trust in them to to do what they're expected to do. You create a culture uh, that that aligns everyone's incentives, and you're willing to do everything within the organization. You're not asking people to do something that you're not. Willing to do yourself, I think it's also a credit to your your modest upbringing and how you you know lifted yourself up by your bootstraps uh, that that you're not afraid to get yeah, your hands dirty.
2: Background, you know, I could have empathy with almost anybody,
0: right? You know, going going,
2: you know, having been as, as poor as I was, a, a kid with my background, or a young or a person with my background, we have we had you know shared experiences. Went to Harvard Business School where everybody graduated from Princeton. You know, I had that experience as well. You know, right. it, it's an interesting, you know, so you, you're really lucky. I, I tell people, young people, you know, I get a lot of questions about people from good back, you know, from fine backgrounds. So what do I do to make my kid, you know, learn put them in an uncomfortable position? Send them to Knowles. Send them to Outward Bound Knowles National Leadership School. Right. You know, Get him a job in a in a psychiatric hospital in Kentucky or some other damn thing, you know. Or you know, send him to Bangladesh. You know, uh, I got a friend who does does uh, spinal surgery in Ethiopia. I would be his as assistant for, for the summer, or, you know, that kind of thing. But you're right, you you make you John, you're very good. You picked out all the things I said. I kind of strung them all together. It's truly and being able to give people credit, you know, make sure they understand that you're not trying to take the credit. Give them the credit and also the compensation. One of the problems is if you even give them the credit, they say, well, thanks for the credit. Where's the money? And so you got to make sure you give them the money. Too. And of course, I did the one thing which I still think ties everybody together. Everybody owned a piece of the rock.
0: Right. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and I usually give Anthony a hard time on these talks. But two of the things that you just mentioned are things that he drills into us here at Skybridge. One, he has a plaque. I'm actually sitting in his office uh, in our New York headquarters right now. There's a plaque. Ronald Reagan said, it's amazing what you can accomplish, essentially, uh, if you don't care who gets the credit. Um, and, and also leave, you know, he, he learned this.
1: I know. I don't um, like John getting the credit for all these good ratings on salt talks though. Hagem, I got to be honest. <laughs> it's, enough, then, is, uh, hey, hey, enough, enough is enough, right? Yes, exactly. It can only go so far. Okay. I just want to make that clear, but go ahead, John. John then, took it a little bit too literally. Hagem.
0: And then uh, the, the second piece is from Lee ka He writes about this in one of his books is, you know, he, he asked Lee ka what is one lesson that you would give me in my career to help me be successful? And, and Lee Ka-Shing told him, leave money on the table for your partners. Don't try to squeeze every dime or every penny out of every transaction that you do with your partners. Give them more than they even might expect, and you're going to have you know, a partner for life and somebody who's going to be a, a lifelong advocate for you and someone who can unlock value for you. I'll That's give you good. another
2: idea, all right, yeah. which I, I did unconsciously. Deflect credit. They try to give it to you. I, when I was the chairman of, of president of the alumni association, Harvard Business School, they wanted to throw a day for me after I, I was te- on the board for ten years, and we did do we did do a lot of really good things. We did this long, uh, uh, lifelong lifelong edu- lifelong learning process, which really ac- actually was very spectacular. They were going to give me a day, so that, that day was my day. I developed a video for Christine, who was the. Uh, assistant uh, director of of alumni relations who was absolutely fantastic. And so I did a video on her and her life and how she helped us and everything else. And after that session, which I did get a lot of credit, one of the women, very senior ladies at Harvard Business Commitment said that's the classiest thing I've ever seen. And I did it unconsciously because I really thought that Christine was, she was Christine Fairchild, fabulous lady. And she basically, I quit the board because originally, because I thought it was just a, a resume builder. She came after me, so you gotta come back on the board. It's more than a resume builder. I went on, it was first two years, then another eight years, and I became this president of the Alumni Association, but I deflected it. Same yep. thing I did when I left at, as the chairman of the Board of Trustees at Rochester. I did something which I think you know, I, I, I think you should copy. And I, I asked the president for 40 minutes, and I gave him a book called This Is, this is the, My Moment, which is a book about gratitude. And I also got crystal pieces. With, I, and on it, I put each person's name, University of Rochester, and thanks, Ed. And I said, this is a thank you that can never be destroyed and can never go away. What you've done for me as a board, we raised a billion three, which was, that's un- a whole story. What you've done for me and for this school should be remembered forever, and that's why I want to say thanks forever. But you know, deflecting credit, Uri Kassing is exactly right. Leave something on the table. By the way, on deals, it's the same way. You know, I I remember the Xerox deal. I didn't push that. I did push the I did push the 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 uh, the ING deal a little bit because I felt they were undervaluing me. I knew what the price they were willing to pay from one of my competitors, so I was I knew that was in their pocket. So I figured I'd I'd take that. Uh, but you know, I, I I left that on the table, and also I feel very. Very confident, I tried to give back to both Xerox and ING if you read the book. Both people, you felt that it was an overpaid deal. In each case, they both did just fine if you read the book. So I'm kind of excited about that. But those are the kinds of little bit of lessons. But marry those two things. Helping people do better than they think they can and not taking the credit. And even deflecting the credit. Boy, I tell you, it really works. And it's unconscious. It sounds like manipulation. I did it unconsciously, and writing this book and thinking back, basically at Biscuit, Rochester when I started the book, I started to realize that was what I was doing unconsciously. And, and, because I got, and by the way, I did it because I got a kick out of it. When someone comes into your office and says, I just did this unbelievable deal that you may have really helped them with or her with, you know, and you see him light up, that really turns you on. Or, or in the case of kids with at college, when I get this, by the way, the book looks like to me could be. I'm hoping I got some emails back from some some what we call uh, uh, foster home, foster home kids up in Boston, who basically uh, are with a group called Wiley, they, they 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 are counseled by this group called Wiley, and they're in places like MIT and Harvard and Tufts and so forth. And I got a couple letters, uh, emails after one of my talks saying Ed. You really inspired me to keep going. That pays all the bills. Pays all the bills. You get so much more than you give, no matter what.
0: Yeah. John thank you for surprise.
2: He's pretty good there, Tony. I don't know about you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Finally, get, get somebody is, on to ask the good questions, you know. This is um, the last this is the
1: last time you'll see him on Salt Talk. You're fired, Darcy. You're fired. So he needs all, to read your all, book all again, seri- Ed. In all seriousness though, Ed, not only is he good at this, but he's also the head curator of our Salt Conference, uh, which are two live events that we were doing prior to the pandemic, and so yeah, no, we've uh, we've 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 downloaded a lot of responsibility to John. He's done a brilliant job. And hey, John,
2: I I give you great empathy. My daughter is a is a curator for TED Talks, the business part of TED Talks. It's right. one of the toughest jobs ever. It's like being a Broadway producer with only one night stands. Really. It's very tough. Yeah.
0: No, I mean, we, we strive to be in the stratosphere of Ted talks, you know, salt talks is what we call our series and it's modeled after Ted talks. I think obviously what she's done there to contribute to the success of that organization, I'm sure is amazing. I want to ask you one more question. There's too much wisdom here for me to let you go early. So we're going to go right up to uh, the, the end of our allotted time here, but it's about the future. And, you know, um, You've talked a lot about how you talked about the lily pad. You talked about you know if you don't jump off the lily pad to the next lily pad, you're going to get left behind. And I think generationally, there's a lot of people on Wall Street in the industry who who don't think that way and are, are trying to hold on to the past. You see companies like a Coinbase. I don't know how familiar you are with digital currency, oh, yeah. Yeah. Coin and all that stuff. That's going to you know go live and be a hundred plus billion dollar company. You have Stripe, which is a private you know payments company that's is worth a hundred billion already in private markets. Both of those either bumping into or exceeding the market cap of a company like Goldman Sachs. But as you look out into the landscape, uh, where do you see the puck moving, to use an overused cliche, in terms of Wall Street, in terms of fintech's disruption of old Wall Street? And, and how would you give advice to CEOs of some of these uh, legacy organizations in terms of how not to get left behind?
1: You know, change
2: is, is it's corny, but change is accelerating. But there's more opportunity now than ever before, but you've got to keep changing. I mean, the fact that Foeman would not accept the fact that Institutional was going to take over from retail and be more important, or that he wouldn't marry the, 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 the research department you know, to his bankers and so forth, and the fact that, that, that Glucksmann wouldn't recognize that, that, invest, that, that asset management was the next step. You know, I don't know how big we could have been. We went from 2 billion to 10 billion in two and a half years with the Lehman name. I could have been Larry, I could have been Black, BlackRock, you know, if, if he left, left us alone, maybe. Right. Anyway, today, AI, VR, AR, genomics, biotech, all this stuff that Wall Street has to finance over the next, you know, 20, 30 years. There's a book by Julian called 2030, which is terribly statistical. And after reading, I'm reading fiction for the first time in my life so that some of the nonfiction I'm reading is not as quite as, 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 as uh, you know, not as juicy as, a, as fiction. But, you know, 2030, the next 10 years, what he talks about, the kinds of changes that are going on, Wall Street has to accept. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not an owner of cryptocurrency because I'm, a, I'm an old fogey, you know, you know <laughs> but I now recognize that's very, very important. You know, and people, when I traded in the over the counter market in the 60s, people said, What are you doing? You're not going to trade over the counter stocks, are you? The spreads were so wonderful that my over the counter desk made more money than anybody else because I had these 40 guys from Staten Island all trading over the counter stuff, you know. Anyway, so I think that today Wall Street has more opportunity than ever before, but it's going to be different. The problem with Wall Street today is that you have too many very large companies. And you know, when you're competing against very large companies, it's just very difficult to operate. But you're getting some new company like Coinbase. I mean, there'll be other programs like that. I'm recommending most young people, unless they're really fin- unless they're really fine, you know, really, really get excited about finance. Just there's so many other opportunities today. Plus, the world is now three or four times as big as it's been before. International is possible, and internet gives you access to all that. Find a wave, find a cycle, find a find a, a trend, find an unsatisfied demand or find a need that's going to be satisfied in the next 20 years. You're going to have a lot of fun. Wall Street is is very, you know, JP Morgan's a fantastic company. It's just hard to compete against. And Coinbase has done it, but it's going to be the exception rather than the rule that's going to be. I think that, and in many respects, the financial businesses have, have topped out to some extent. I mean Automobiles have not been so good for a very long time, except for Tesla. You know, it's been a tough one. You know, there were, I mean, how many automobile companies now there's so few, there are only two or three in America today. So I think that working for the financial business shouldn't be drawing as many young people as it drew when I was in school. So I I think that basically uh, what my advice would be, you should have some group of people in every large company in a skunk works like Minnesota Mining, thinking about what's next, and be willing to spend money on it. And don't throw out anything. Don't throw out any idea and have it separate from your company. Just, and and basically say, here's, and this is what Capital Research did with me. They threw me out and they said, you got to go to Greenwich to do a growth fund. Uh, we can't have that here, you know, in Los Angeles. I mean, growth fund, income fund, income only, <laughs> over there, Greenwich, you know. And, and, and they did that. And and of course, I flunked badly. You'll see that in the book. I, I, got, I got the terminal disease called hubris and they brought it back in. But the Growth Fund of America, which I found and, and started, ended up being the largest mutual fund in the country at one point in time, even bigger than Fidelity for one for, for a period of time. And income fund got, I think it's nearly 100 billion today. But that was the completion of the product line. So today, let's get those skunk works working. Don't throw out anything. And unfortunately, which is one of the most difficult thing, it's international. You must be international. And unfortunately, New York has given away its prominence. I, and I, I, I complain about America in, in a couple of veins, we should have never given away that marketplace. We should have kept it, we should have sponsored it. Now, you know, when, when it was a point in time, you couldn't do a hundred million dollars, bigger than a hundred million dollar deal outside the United States. Now, Hong Kong can do it, London can do it. So you gotta be international. And you got to get people that are willing to get on it, you know, the plane and get out and go, go to see those places. And under you have to have international, you have to have an international, uh, uh, you know, employees constantly. And there are two ways to do that. Even for a little firm and sales ended up with office in Tokyo, uh, Sydney and uh, San Francisco. There's all those foreign places uh, and London. We had a big office in London. I remember going to, to Tokyo to visit, visit my office. And I bumped into Bob Greenhill from Morgan Stanley. And he said, uh, you're here, what are you doing? I said, I'm visiting my office. You said, so am I. I said, how many people do you have? He said, 800. He said, how many do you have? I said,
0: one. <laughs> but <laughs> well, we have in the one. world of remote work, you know, having a global distributed workforce has, has gotten easier. And, we and that's, have to talk that's about the last that. thing. So,
2: that's the last thing. Today, people in the financial business are recognize that COVID, like every other difficult situation, has huge positives telemedicine's tele- tele- going to explode. FinTech, just what you mentioned. But EdTech, FinTech, and MedTech are going to be just huge explosive areas. And it may not require as much capital. We may have to sort of change things a bit. Funding may have to be smaller. You know, and there may be some new businesses that, that all these companies go into. And some may be too small for some of the big companies. So right. some of the smaller companies can do a, do a better job.
0: All right. Well, Ed, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, you know, we'll have to, to meet up on the golf course or at the salt conference. I know Anthony's not much of a golfer, but uh, yeah, I'd love to tee it up with you either down there in ocean reef or Nantucket, or you can come see us on long Island. Well, we're in Long Island. Uh, I'm up actually in the town that Anthony grew up in Port Washington. Um, and what's so, the name of the club? Uh, this, the club that I play is called Sands Point golf club. Oh, I've heard it's of it. It's Tillinghast, beautiful, uh, Lynxy style course. Um, it, it's great, just just around the corner from my house.
2: Well, if you get to Nantucket, I'll give you a, an afternoon at the Nantucket Golf Club, uh, uh, Anthony. You can come. We, we can sit. We let them play, and we can sit and watch them. All right, and Anthony can off.
0: do the landscaping uh, before we play. Yeah, I see that he's he's going to want me out there pulling the
1: weeds. <laughs> That's how these guys are. You know. No, but it, it, it it's a sanctuary. Now listen, it, it's an absolutely breathtaking course. Uh, I was up there uh, with Wayne Heisegna, uh, oh. The legendary Wayne Izegna, uh in 1997, uh, and it was the year that he had won the World Series. I uh, remember he, he had the, he took the Florida Marlins when he owned it to the World Series in '97, and then eventually sold the team. But uh, yeah, absolutely legendary, beautiful course. Ed uh, on the road less traveled, uh, amazing book, an unlikely journey from an orphanage to the boardroom, and uh, I love the cover, Ed but I love more of the content of what's in this book and I'm recommending it to everybody. And I want to thank you uh, personally on behalf of all of us for joining SALT Talk today.
2: Thank you very much. Appreciate your time and the good questions. It was a lot of fun. Thanks very much.
0: Likewise. And thank you everybody for tuning in to today's SALT Talk with the great Ed Hagem. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We've made all of these episodes uh, free and available for everyone to watch. So please spread the word. We love educating people, uh, young and old, uh, from great people like Ed, who have have incredible lessons to teach from their long careers, successful careers on Wall Street and elsewhere. Uh, Just a reminder, we're also on social media, at Salt Conference is where we're most active on Twitter, and we'd love for you to give us a follow. Uh, But we're also on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook as well. On behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.